0: To receive the small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
1: Hi, I'd like to welcome you again to another study in the book of Exodus. And just before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for taking the position of being our Father, and we are your children. And as we come before you now, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open, Lord, our wills to be able to say, whatever you tell us, we'll do. Wherever you send us, we'll go. At whatever cost, we're willing, as we put our hand in your hand and say, lead us O thou great Jehovah, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, follow along here in Exodus chapter one, verses one through seven. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, God and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, what we saw in our last study is that we looked at what it must have been like for Jacob. Received this news, unbelievable news, while he was in Canaan. What was the news? The news was that Joseph was alive. Jacob heard that Joseph was alive and Joseph was calling him to come down to Egypt. What was that like for Jacob? What did he go through when he heard this unbelievable news? First of all, when he heard the name Joseph, it must have just been a shock to him. Joseph? I thought Joseph was dead. And then he hears, go down to Egypt. Egypt, in Jacob's mind, was so bad. It was such a bad place. After all, Egypt was the place where his sons had been just falsely accused and were trying to survive under this accusation that they were thieves. Egypt was the place of imprisonment, where his son Simeon had gone down and was now in prison, and the only way Simeon could come out was if Benjamin was released her from him and brought down into Egypt. So naturally, Jacob was very afraid to go down to Egypt. But God told Jacob, Jacob, don't you be afraid to go to Egypt. Here were the words in Genesis 46, three. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. That was God's call to Jacob, go down to Egypt. But God also gave to Jacob a promise. What was the promise? He said, for there, down there in Egypt, I'm going to make you a great nation. And this was a promise that God made to Jacob. They were only 100 people, less than 100 people, but God made this promise to him. And as we open the chapter of Exodus, we see the fulfillment of that promise was where we see that now The children of Israel had numbered in the millions. But that was hundreds of years later from the first word that God had spoken to Jacob, which was, I'll make of you there a great nation. That was a promise. Go down to Egypt. That was a command. And then the promise. You know, God didn't have to tell Jacob what he was going to do or why he was commanding him to go down into Egypt. But that shows us something about who God is, who is the Lord Jesus Christ that Jacob knew as Elohim, as El, as Jehovah. God is a friend, he wants to be a friend. God treats us like friends and he tells us things that he doesn't have to tell him. He did this in the case of Abraham. In Genesis 18, 17 through 18, it says this narrative reads like this, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? In other words, here's the Lord speaking And he's considering in his mind, and he's opening the door for us to see what's actually going on in his mind as he considers this possibility of hiding something from Abraham. And so he asks himself the question, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? You know, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, it makes us his friends. He doesn't hide things from his friends. He made it very clear in that wonderful chapter of I Am the Vine, in chapter 15, verses 14 through 15 of John, John fifteen, fourteen through 15, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us, and he says, ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father I have made known unto you. So we see here the great Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Jacob who knew him by the name El and telling him go down to Egypt and giving him this promise that he would become a great nation. It took hundreds of years Jacob never saw the fulfillment of the promise. But even though Jacob didn't see the fulfillment of the promise, literally, he believed God. And his belief in God was so strong is that he went along with God on God's page. And in going along with God on God's page, he could see with the eye of faith the fulfillment of the promise, which we're reading about now in the first chapter here of Exodus. And so this is a great pattern for us, the pattern of having a promise from God that we cannot see, obeying the command that goes along with that promise, and that's described for us as a pattern that should be in our lives. It's talked about, it's a great verse in Habakkuk 2, that the just shall live by faith. That's what it means, the just shall live by faith. That's what started the whole Reformation with Martin Luther. The just shall live by faith was the verse that really got a hold of him as he understood what it meant. But a couple of verses before that, in that same chapter of Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3, reads like this. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, And make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. We see in that verse there, in Habakkuk, verse 3, that God wanted them to write the vision. Make a written record, Habakkuk, write it down. And when you write it down, he said, make sure that the writing is very plain. In other words, it's understood. And make it so that it is to be read, he said. The record is to be read. And make it so that when the readers read what you've written down, that they will act on it, what he's called run. He puts it this way. He said, that he may run that readeth it because it's on the basis of that record that there must be a response. Now, let's see how these truths apply to us today. First, God told Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain. The truth that is very, very important for us today is the truth about the literal heaven and hell. They are plainly recorded in the Bible. It's a plain record. First Corinthians two nine says like this, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. See what God is saying here. He's saying this is unbelievable. This is has not been seen yet. This has not been heard. It has the imagination of the wonder of this has never even entered into man's heart. And what is it? It's what God hath prepared or laid up for those that love him. That's heaven. That's what God has prepared in heaven. John 3:16 speaks about the eternal life when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that we all saw. We all have seen how God gave his only begotten son and he died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. But it says that whosoever believeth in him or believes into him or believes on him, we could all say that similar uh, ways, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We live in this earth right now. We have not seen the fulfillment of everlasting life. That'll happen to us after we die. So it's a vision for the future. John 14, one through three also is a vision for the future when it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We see, we have seen that he has gone away. The Lord Jesus Christ is not here in Jerusalem in the garden tomb, it's an empty tomb. He's not here, he's gone away. But he said what he's doing. He said that when he left, which we've seen that he's left, that he's gone to prepare a place for us. He says it's the place within his father's house in which he said there are many mansions in his father's house. And he says he's going there and just as sure as he's gone there to prepare a place, he said, I will come again and I will receive you. I will bring you unto myself so that we can be together forever. That's a vision for the future. All of those verses speak about the reality of heaven. And just as the Bible speaks about the sure reality of heaven, the Bible also speaks about the sure reality of hell. For example, in John eight thirty eight twenty four, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his enemies said, "'I said therefore unto you, "'that ye shall die in your sins.'" for if you believe not that I am, or you could say, if you believe not that I am, that I am the I am, in other words, the eternal God. He said, for if you believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. In Revelation 20, verse 15, speaking again about hell, it says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, when we read these verses here, it's speaking to us about the clear, plain truths. The Bible is speaking clearly here. The Bible is speaking plainly here about the reality of heaven for those that love him and the reality of hell for those who reject him as he claimed to be God, very God. But we are to read, just like Habakkuk was told, write the vision that it might be read. We are to read and reread these plain truths about all that we understand in the Bible, heaven and hell. For example, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he said, till I come, give attendance to reading. Just read the Bible, just read it and read it and give attendance to reading, Paul told Timothy. That's important because it's only as we read, it's only as we fill ourselves with the reality of the truths that we have in the Bible that we will act or as God said in Habakkuk, that him run that readeth, we will act, that we will run on the basis of the record. And so God says to us, run, act, in Mark 16, 15 through 16, he said, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. See, that was the point that God was making there. He's saying, look, you read these things, you see these things about heaven, and hell, Now do something, now run, now go, now preach, why? Because the simple truth is, If you preach, if you go, if you preach, if you tell the message, if the hearers respond and believe and are baptized, they'll be saved. You don't have control over that, but you can do all you can to persuade, to make possible. But it's for sure, if you don't go, if you don't tell, then how are they going to respond? So he's saying, your part is to run. You read, you understood, now run. Run to go, run to preach. As far as their decision, that's out of your hands. But do everything you possibly can so that they will, as it says here, believe and do all that they can, which in this particular case, if they're able to be baptized, because if they do, then they'll be saved. And on the other hand, it says, if they don't believe, then they will be damned. So there's a pattern here. And just as God told Jacob, go down to Egypt, We have been told, go and preach the gospel. Just as God told Jacob, the reason I will make there in Egypt you a great nation, God has told us, those that believe and respond to me, and if they're able to be baptized, they will be saved. But those that don't believe will be not saved, will be damned, as he put it. Now, God used Egypt to nourish Israel as a nation. In our last study, we looked at the relationship between Egypt and the Jewish people in Israel. Egypt was a very foreign land to the Jewish people, very foreign. It represented to Israel a place that is very strange, very foreign, foreign gods, foreign practices, foreign language. All of those things were foreign to Israel, but, it represented a land for food and we can imagine how this looked to jacob you know we to see the condition that jacob was in we only have to look at genesis 43:11 where jacob who in this case is called israel is speaking to his sons and he's saying to himself we need to make a present for this very powerful man, the prime minister down there so that he'll agree to give us food because we're obviously starving. And what he said in Genesis 43, 11, it says, and their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm, and a little honey, spices, and myrrh, nuts, and almonds. Now, Jacob, or Israel, he's called here, he knew that the survival of his family depended on this man's decision. This was the most powerful man, you could argue, in the world, this prime minister in Egypt, because Egypt was the most powerful country in the world at that time, and so Jacob knew he had to gain the favor of this man. So he made a present. He makes this present as impressive as he could, but yet it's pitiful. It's so sad when you read these words that Jacob said to his sons. He says, carry down the man a present, a little balm. He says, a little honey, a little spices, myrrh, nuts. What a pathetic picture. We can almost see them there as, He's saying, you know, count out a few almonds, count out your precious few nuts a little. It must have broke Joseph's heart when they came with this present to give them and they open up as if it's precious, a few almonds, a few nuts. But that was the condition they were in. And so when they came into Egypt, this must have astounded them what they saw. I mean, first of all, Egypt, the name for Egypt in Arabic is the Arab Republic of Misr Misr M I S R Misr that's Egypt it's called Egypt but the Hebrew people the Jewish people the Hebrew language does not call Egypt Misr they call it Misr Ayim Misr Ayim the ending of Ayim means two and so it's Misr Ayim or Mizraim Mizraim that's the name in Hebrew for Egypt for the land of Egypt why because what the name is really saying is two Egypts, two missers, because the Nile River splits Egypt as a land right down the middle into what you could consider two countries. It's so important. Egypt is all about the Nile. We can't imagine it, but Egypt is made Egypt because of the Nile. Everything that Egypt has comes from the Nile because this river predictably overflows its banks in the year, and during that predictable time when it overflows its banks, it's unbelievable the change that happens to an otherwise desert of Egypt as it overflows. This river brings to Egypt life. And it brings to Egypt, it makes Egypt the fertile land that it is, that it blossoms, it's a fruitful land. You know, we can understand this here where I live because not far from us is the Imperial Valley that's east of San Diego. And we get all of our alfalfa hay from Imperial Valley. You say, why are you interested in alfalfa hay? Well, because we have a business and our business in the beginning was all about goats. And so in the 1970s and the 80s, when our business was all dependent on antibodies that we were getting from goats, it was a goat, and it is still goat antibody business. And at that time, it was in our home. And so that meant that we had 300 antibody producing goats all around our house. So our house and those 300 goats was on about an acre of usable land. And that is not very much land to have 300 goats on and your house, which meant that from our house, we could throw a stone and hit 300 goats. And so on those one acre, we had goat pens, and that land was just maxed out with goats. Now, each goat eats about a ton of alfalfa hay per year. So very quick math. And you understand that we needed 300 tons of alfalfa hay every year. And so what did we do? We would go down to El Centro, which is down in the Imperial Valley. It's about a two hour drive from our house and there we would buy this alfalfa hay. And the ground of the Imperial Valley is very productive. Lots of the vegetables for the United States come from the Imperial Valley. And as far as alfalfa goes, they get about five to eight cuttings per year of alfalfa, which means that each acre of land down in the Imperial Valley will make somewhere between seven to 10 tons of alfalfa hay per year. And we would go down there and buy the best alfalfa hay that we could buy. And we would especially be interested in the first cuttings. The first cuttings just after the summer. That was the best of the best. And it was, that hay was small, tender, soft stems, great aroma, and they'd have those wide, lush alfalfa leaves. And the goats would go crazy for that first cuttings from the Imperial Valley. And to select that, we would go down, and there'd be these big stacks of hay on the field, and tarps covering them, and We would look at them and to evaluate them, they'd kick off a bale off the top of it and then they'd cut the baling wire and right in the center, all that green, beautiful hay, I would take my hand and I right in the center of that flake of hay, I would just grab a handful of that alfalfa. I would close my eyes and I'd pretend that the palm of my hand was the upper palate of a goat's mouth and I'd slowly squeeze that handful of hay and move it back in my hands, back and forth, like a goat would chew a mouthful full of those first cuttings, and it would be so beautiful. There'd be no shark, stiff stems poking into the palm of my hand, just like that real tender, soft, whole structure of that hay would just collapse in my hand and give off more aroma. And I'd bring that handful of those first cuttings up to my nose, breathe deeply and smell the sweet fragrance, just like the goats did. And then I'd put some a little bit of my mouth and grind it around and chew it. It was wonderful. Hey, just wonderful. You know, we had to buy about 6,000 of those hundred pound bales every year. And so that meant that we'd have to bring in about 12 what they call truck and trailer loads full and it was just the greatest day you could possibly buy
0: another wonderful day studying the bible with our bible teacher tom Cantor here on friendship with god don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org